alcohol and uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast, Pole and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 33rd episode of Polcast. In this episode we will tell you... What an animal psychologist can teach us about our love for animals. How a Polish virtuoso pianist and politician is celebrated in the United States. And how a father's teaching assignment at Polish universities in the 1980s shaped the life of an American historian specializing in Poland and Eastern Europe. Smacznego! We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Classic Polish Recipes and Classic Polish Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. During our travels to Polish church festivals, a lot of our new friends ask if we have a recipe for Polish wedding chicken. Frankly, Peter had never heard of it, but that's because he didn't go to any Polish weddings while growing up. So I did some research and checked the usual internet cookings websites. Peter even checked Polish websites, and we actually found a lot of recipes for Polish wedding chicken. We learned that this dish is actually a North American invention created by preparing roast chickens for hundreds of Polish heritage weddings throughout the U.S. and Canada. And as many weddings as there were, all the big pans of roast chickens were prepared by just as many church ladies in just as many church halls of just as many Polish churches, and we found just as many variations online. So you might ask, isn't this just a glammed up version of roast chicken? Can't anyone stick a chicken in the oven and pull it out after 90 minutes? Well, yeah, that's technically possible, but then it wouldn't have the love of a bona fide Polish wedding chicken. Here's the headline version of a great recipe that we've made at our house. If you take the time to do it right, everyone around the table will love you for it. And who knows, could there be another wedding in your future? Preheat your oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Remove that nasty giblets packet from the insides of a three to five pound roaster chicken. Clean and dry the insides and loosen the skin wherever possible. Next, puree onion, garlic, paprika, salt, and pepper until smooth. Spread half of the mix in the bottom of a roasting pan and the other half under the chicken's skin. Roast the bird for about an hour or until the internal temperature reaches 175 degrees Fahrenheit and the cavity juices are clear. The temp is very important. Now let it rest on a board under a foil tent. To make the gravy, pour off the pan juices and skim off the fat. Loosen up all those little brown bits of goodness stuck to the bottom of the pan. Pour back the pan juices, more broth, and yes, a third cup of vodka. Yeah, you heard me right, vodka. And bring it to a low boil. Add some dill, 
cornstarch, and sour cream and simmer on low while stirring constantly. Taste for salt and pepper and voila, you have your gravy. Carve the chicken and arrange the parts on a pretty platter. Pour on the gravy, but not so much that that chicken will start swimming away. Serve with the vegetables polonaise we discussed a few episodes ago. I like to pair mine with ice-cold Polish vodka, and Laura prefers a light red wine such as Pinot Noir or a dry rosé. Oh, it's so good. The full recipe for Polish wedding chicken and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking. Just scroll down to the blog posted on October 24th, 13, and the books make a great Christmas present. Smacznego! A few episodes ago, I interviewed Professor Bernie Koloski, who came to Poland as a Fulbright Professor of American Literature in 1981. Not only did he not leave when martial law was declared, but he extended his stay to two years. Bernie Koloski came to Poland with his two daughters, who were then in their 20s. One of them is Professor Lori Koloski, a historian doing research on Poland at William and Mary University at Williamsburg, Virginia. Her life changed its course because of the years she spent in Poland. We reached Lori Koloski in Virginia. Your interest in Poland goes back many, many years. It actually all came from uh, from your father. It did. In September of 1981, we went to Poland because my father had gotten a Fulbright professorship. We landed in Warsaw, and I vividly remember the first evening that we got there. But it was some big, you know, beautiful, probably interwar building that was a tourist hotel. So we checked into the hotel in the evening, and then we went down to dinner. And knowing pretty much literally nothing about Poland, we looked at the menu, and the menu must have had, I don't know, 20 pages of options. It's September of 1981, and so there are all these options, which are in multiple languages, in Polish and English and probably Russian, I don't really remember. So we sort of all selected our options, and the waiter came. And one by one, we told the waiter what we wanted, and one by one, the waiter said, Niema, 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 Niema. Don't have that, don't have that, don't have that, don't have that, don't have that. Uh, Somebody had the intelligence to ask the waiter, well, what do you have? And the waiter said, well, we have two things. Yike of mayonnaise, so eggs and mayonnaise, and karpozidowsku, carp Jewish style, or carp and aspic, right? As we found out when we ordered it, because since there were two things on the menu, we ordered those. And I was not particularly a fan of eggs and mayonnaise or aspic, which to this day I despise. Uh, And so I remember getting that first meal and thinking, oh, for the love of God, where have we come to? (laughs) And in retrospect, of course, I mean, obviously, you know, it was a huge uh, time of economic crisis. It was the evening meal in a culture where you have your big meal at lunch. Um, So it was a bit of a rough beginning, but it went up from there. And how? It didn't take long. You know, we only spent a couple days in Warsaw and then we went to Krakow. And we were in Krakow, I think, for two weeks of orientation. And not only did the meals get better, but it was, I mean, it was such a beautiful place. The people we were talking with and who were talking to us about what was going on and what we needed to know to sort of make the most of this year of Fulbright experience, you know, they were wonderful, wonderful people. And then we went to Katowice, because that's where my father was at the University in Sosnowiec, which was, I don't know, what five miles away, maybe. It's a large city in the southwestern part of Poland. It's a big coal mining center. And it was black. I mean, it was literally a black city. 
And every time it snowed, the snow would turn black within hours. So it was not a particularly beautiful city, but uh, the building that we lived in was filled with wonderful people from all over the world, including, you know, the woman my father married from France, Monique. And the building next to ours was a dormitory for the um, Polytechnic University in Katowice, which included all kinds of other wonderful people, including this very handsome young man named Jarek, who I got to know fairly quickly and eventually married. That turned out to be a mistake in the long run. But in the short run, it was just such a wonderful way to get to know what Poland was about on a kind of individual human level, you know, not as an abstraction, you know, it's a communist, this, that, there, the other thing, but as a place where real people lived and had real lives that were rich and full of wonderful things, even in the midst of this dark, gray time. What surprised you the most? I think, and I, I try to share this with my students because I think it's so easy to think about places like Poland and times like communism in abstract terms. And I think what surprised me the most was just how rich and fulfilling people's lives were. I mean, you didn't have to really dig very deep to realize that these were people like the people you knew back home who, you know, had wonderful, rich, fulfilling lives, even if they lived in this, quote, terrible place and terrible time, right? And I think it was a sort of life lesson in general about what it is that human beings share and how it is that human beings are able to carve out autonomous spaces, even within very difficult constraints. But it was also, I mean, on a day-to-day level, it was, you know, one of the most wonderful times of my life. It's true, you know, it wasn't that easy to find good food to eat. But, you know, in other ways, there were just so many wonderful things. You know, the intensity of some of the conversations that you would have. Or, you know, I vividly remember summers and going up to the Lake District to sail. And that was possible, you know, in part because... You know, my boyfriend's father worked in a in a communist factory that had a sailing club that essentially made it all but free for, you know, the people who worked there to to take advantage of things like a sailboat for two two weeks or four weeks, go visit family members or see the countryside or go hiking in the mountains. So, you know, in some ways, everything was different from what I knew back home. Um, but in other ways, it was at least as rich, if not richer, every experience I had. How about the language? You learned Polish. I did learn. That was, I mean, initially, you know, there were lots of people in the building we lived in who knew English. You know, the guy that I fell in love with quite quickly, he didn't really know English, but he had studied English. And so, you know, when we spoke to each other, we spoke in English. His English got better and better and better. And it wasn't until really my second year in Poland that I moved to Krakow, here I studied Polish at the, what was then called the Institut Badań Polonijny, the Institute for Polonia Studies. So I ended up studying there for three years. I did learn Polish, and I love Polish, and, and I learned it in Krakow. I think my Polish is probably as good as, as good as it is because I learned in Poland. I started in Poland. You decided to stay after your dad left. I was there from 1981 to 1985 for four years. I mean, I had such a wonderful life there. And I might have stayed forever, in fact, because there was a big part of me that wanted to become Polish that kind of faded later. I think I realized that I was never really going to be Polish, that I was as much a U.S. citizen and an American, North American in terms of identity as anything else. But those years were, I mean, you know, I was in my early 20s. They were incredibly sort of formative years and exciting years. And and I just had such a wonderful day-to-day life. It was an independent life and it was a kind of exotic life. And it was filled with all these wonderful adventures and 
experiences and you know new things to learn about and uh, but I hadn't finished my undergraduate degree yet you know I knew that sooner rather than later I had to go back and finish my degree how did it feel when you got back that must have been a, an extremely difficult or interesting experience there are aspects of popular culture that I just completely missed Like to this day, I haven't seen the movie E.T. I just kind of missed this huge swath of popular culture because it wasn't so easy to get access to U.S. popular culture at the early 1980s. I mean, there was no internet and everything coming into Poland during that time was censored. The United States did that. I mean, it was just, there was just so much stuff and so much to choose from and it was a little bit bewildering. But I think partly, you know, you know, by then I was married and Yannick came back with me and we went to the University of Michigan and I finished my bachelor's degree and he actually started a master's degree. So, you know, in a sense, we were kind of finding our way together and it was truly a new, I mean, it was a completely new experience for him and a half new experience for me. And so there was sort of, you know, between the two of us, it was kind of an adventure. You know, I was in a sense beginning an academic study of what I had just lived through. Did you find that people on this continent knew anything at all? You know, I was at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I don't suppose it was coincidental that some of Yadik's and my closest friends at the time were mixed Polish-American couples, or, you know, Europeans, or people from other parts of the world. Our circle of friends was a group of people who had spent time in other cultures and lived in other places, and so had that kind of perspective on day-to-day -day life. Within the university, I was working with people who had spent years in various parts of the world studying it. So there was certainly a community of people there who understood, broadly speaking, what it was like to move between cultures. On other levels, in terms of family and friends, you know, outside the university, Now, I think people didn't know anything. When I left the United States to go to Poland, I, I was thinking I would become a journalist. And I vividly remember reading coverage of what was going on in Poland, and even newspapers like the New York Times, and realizing that the correspondents didn't know any Polish, and they had no idea what was going on. And so I would read things about, you know, coverage of, of the solidarity of strikes and of the, uh, you know, the crackdown, the martial law in 1981, all that kind of stuff, and I would just be kind of stunned at how far off the mark the coverage was and it really did you know set me to questioning what it was the journalists did and whether that was something I wanted to do and I suppose in some ways that that's what pushed me toward a deeper study of the region as opposed to simply moving into an occupation a profession where I would report on it I wanted to know more about it and I wanted to try and understand how people had gotten it so wrong or, or how it was that people had such a surface level view of things and in the end I mean that is what you know that is what I do right I try and make sense of and explain what communism was about not on a surface level but at a sort of deeper you know at a deeper level in part two of this interview we will hear Laurie Koloski talk about Poland's history And as usual, we invite you to visit our website at mypodcast.com. You can leave your comments there as well as learn a lot more about the people we talk to and about the issues. Did you know that the largest castle in the world measured by land area is located in the Polish town of Malborg? This 13th century architectural gem was one of many castles built in northern Poland by the Teutonic Order of Holy Mary in Jerusalem, a German-Roman Catholic religious order of crusaders limited to the German aristocracy, 
which was sent there in 1225 by the Pope to convert the local pagan population into Christianity. In 1226, the order was given land by Polish Duke Konrad of Mazovia, who hoped for the protection of Poland against the attacks of pagan Prussians. The Teutonic Order grew quickly in power and soon exterminated Prussians, repressed local Christian population and started to threaten Poland. They were known for their merciless violence. The castle was built in a form of a fortress. The order named it Marienburg, which means Mary's Castle. The town, which grew around it, was also named Marienburg. It was conveniently located on the river Nogat and was easily accessible by barges and trading ships arriving from the Vistula and from the Baltic Sea. The Teutonic Knights collected river tolls from passing ships, as did other castles along the river. They also had a monopoly on the trade of amber. The castle was expanded several times to house the growing number of knights. Soon it became the largest fortified Gothic building in Europe, on a nearly 21 hectare or 52 acre site. The castle has several subdivisions and numerous layers of defensive walls. It consists of three separate castles, the high, the middle and lower castle, separated by multiple dried moats and towers. The castle once housed approximately 3,000 brothers. It's a particularly fine example of a medieval brick castle. Malbork later fell into decay, but was meticulously restored in the 19th and the early 20th centuries. Following severe damage in the Second World War, it was once again restored, using the detailed documentation which was prepared by earlier conservators. Today, the Teutonic Order capital Malbork, Marienburg, is one of the biggest Gothic castles in the world. UNESCO designated the Castle of the Teutonic Order in Malbork and the Malbork Castle Museum as the World Heritage Site. It is one of the two World Heritage Sites in the region, with origins in the Teutonic Order. The other one is the medieval town of Torun, founded in 1231 as the site of the Castle Thorn. There is a lot of talk about animal cruelty and animal rights nowadays. With the social media promoting cute videos and photos comes a question. Are we doing the right thing and acting in the best interest of animals? Dorota Wieland is an animal psychologist and animal rights activist based in Poland, founder and president of the IUS Animalia Animal Protection Foundation, coordinating a number of recent animal protection and nature preservation campaigns, also involved in animal-related legislative processes in Poland as a consultant to the Parliamentary Group of Animals Friends. In her private life, she's a loving foster mom of four dogs and a horse, all of them once victims of human cruelty and irresponsibility. We reached Dorota Wieland in Warsaw. Now, this whole conversation started with you posting a little video liked by a million or more than a million people that shows a moosely right after giving birth to two beautiful little babies and a woman who is stroking that little baby. And it looks beautiful and very cute. But I loved your comment. Can you just tell us how you commented on this scene? I said that superficially, it seems that is a very sweet picture. A human being caressing and fondling two moose babies and a moose mother who's very friendly uh, with a human being, who is not afraid of a human being, a sweet picture. But 
My comment was that unless it is a zoo or some animal rescue center, for example, the thing that this woman was doing was really making harm to these two uh, moose babies and uh, bringing a very serious risk to them. Uh, the reason is very well known to all psychologists, including animal psychologists, uh, which, by the way, I am. And this phenomenon is called imprinting. This is a phenomenon which was observed many years ago by a scientist called Lawrence, uh, that soon after birth, uh, young mammals and also young birds, especially those birds that build nests, identify themselves with their mother. Uh, this is the scent of the mother, and this is the view of their mother. And the first object that they see after birth is the object that they, they would identify as their mother. The species of that object will be the species with which they will identify themselves. It has also very serious consequences on the reproductive behavior of animals because uh, identifying himself or herself um, as a human being rather than an animal, it will tend to uh, manifest reproductive behaviors towards human beings. So coming back to these two uh, little moose ba babies, they will not know exactly whether they are moose or human. And the presence of a human being in the first hours after birth will have very uh, strong consequences. First of all, these two moose will be approaching human being without any fear. Even worse, they will tend to, be, to, to become close to humans, which in the case of huge wild animals might be dangerous. They will be eager to approach human settlements, so they will not be afraid of hunters, for example. When they grow to the age uh, when um, moose reproduce, they will see human male as a competitor, and they might be really very dangerous. For these animals and for the human beings that will who will uh, come across these animals in the future, and that's why I commented that only superficially it is a sweet uh, picture. In fact, it is a picture that shows a very very dangerous situation. When you were studying uh, animal psychology, and with all your work and research you have done, can you can you tell us the most important things that are contrary? To our general beliefs, apart from what you've just said, do not approach or do not try to be too close to a wild animals. Is there anything else that's so counterintuitive in a way that you have learned and we don't know it? Uh, well, first of all, we can have different ideas about animals' behavior. And uh, we tend to look at them and interpret their behaviors in our human terms. So we cannot read the animal postures, for example, because animals do speak. Generally, the mistakes that we do unintentionally is that we, uh, we look in, uh, at an animal with the human eyes. And that's why we very often we misunderstand. So, for example, if you look at the dog, uh, dog, we are familiar with dogs. So we can more or less read 
dog's behavior. And we know that if the dog uh, puts um, his ears flat against the head, that means he's not very happy. With wild animals, our intuitions are different. And uh, sometimes we misinterpret what they what they really want to tell us. They want to tell us, go away. I don't want to, to, to harm you, but just go away. If you see a wolf and that wolf is uh, licking his lips and is turning his head back away from you, telling you, please go away. I don't want to harm you, but please go away. Normally, wolves uh, are afraid of it and they don't want to come close to humans. The major mistake, I think, apart from misinterpreting animals' behaviors, is that we want to domesticate them. We want to come as close as possible. We admire wildlife, but at the same time, we want them to be less wild, and we want to make this animal come close to you. And this is where the whole problem starts. Because once we domesticate an animal, once we tame a wild animal, it is no no longer wild. And the consequences are that there is a clash between our civilization and animal civilization. If wild animals are not afraid of humans, they tend to come into human houses, into cities, and very often they're killed by hunters or by cars, or they uh, cause uh, car accidents. This civilization clash, I think this is the, the, the most important uh, problem that comes from not understanding animal language. Dorota Vinand is working on a PhD on pathological behaviors in animals, including captive wild animals in zoos and circuses, resulting from poor living conditions. She also acts as a court expert on animal psychology. We will talk to her about these issues in the next part of this interview. And as always, we encourage you to visit our website at mypodcast.com to learn more about these issues and the people that we talk to, as well as to leave your comments. In the times when world leaders have often little to do with intellectual power, we thought it might be a good idea to remember Ignacy Jan Paderewski, a world-famous concert pianist, diplomat, and Poland's first prime minister after Poland regained its independence in 1919. His father was involved in politics and was arrested in connection with the January uprising of 1863. So he was adopted by his aunt. In love with music, he was taught music first by a private tutor, and then from the age of 12 at Warsaw Conservatory. After his musical debut in 1887 in Vienna, Paderewski soon gained great popularity, and his concerts in Paris, London, and then in the United States were incredible successes. He was admired and worshipped. His name at once became synonymous with the highest level of piano virtuosity. Paderewski was a great patriot throughout his life. During World War I, Paderewski became an active member of the Polish National Committee in Paris, which represented the forces trying to create the state of Poland. He became a spokesman for that organization and soon also formed the other social and political organizations, among them the Polish Relief Fund in London. 
He played an important role in persuading US President Woodrow Wilson to include independent Poland as point 13 in Wilson's peace terms. In 1919, in the newly independent Poland, Paderewski was appointed as the Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs. He was one of Poland's representatives at the Paris Peace Conference. He served 10 months as Prime Minister, but the political career was not Paderewski's cup of tea, and he resigned and soon thereafter left Poland, never to return. He took on the role of Polish ambassador to the League of Nations. In 1922, he retired from politics and returned to his musical life. His first concert after a long break, held at Carnegie Hall, was a significant success. He also filled Madison Square Garden 20,000 seats and toured the United States in a private railway car. He died during World War II in the USA and was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. There were dozens of books written about him, even films made. He was awarded honorary doctorates from a number of Polish universities, as well as several American universities. Two music festivals honoring Paderewskis are celebrated in the United States, both in November. Paderewski has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Los Angeles, awarded in 1960. And in the same year, the United States Post Office Department released two stamps commemorating Ignacy Jan Paderewski. You've been listening to the 33rd episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by... Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. We are always curious about your reactions, comments and suggestions, also ideas for new stories. Please share them on our website, mypolcast.com. And we leave you today with Ignacy Jan Paderewski, Polish president and world-renowned pianist, performing his own mazurka. Thank you for listening to Polcast. <laughs>